Welcome to Innovation Files. I'm Rob Atkinson, founder and president of the Information Technology and Innovation Foundation. We're a DC-based think tank that works on technology policy. And I'm Jackie Wisman. I head development at ITIF, which I'm proud to say is the world's top-ranked think tank for science and technology policy. And this podcast is about the kinds of issues we cover at ITIF, from the broad economics of innovation to specific policy and regulatory questions about new technologies. And today we're going to talk about the role of China in technology development and the effect on the U.S. and other countries. Our guest is Sam Olson, an award-winning entrepreneur and independent strategic advisor to a number of companies in Southeast Asia and Hong Kong. Sam is the founding partner of Metis Asia and is the author of What China Wants, available on Substack, which we'll link in our show notes. Welcome, Sam. Hi, thanks for having me. Tell us a bit about yourself and what you're doing in China. So, yeah, we've just moved to, back to the UK after a long time in Asia. And in Asia, I was doing several things related to technology. First, I was the head of intellectual property protection for Kroll. And I also uh, ran uh, Asia's largest social media analysis firm. And more recently, uh, at Evenstar, we've been doing a lot of uh, public policy work around business intelligence and political and economic risk. But looking specifically at Chinese influence around the world, but specifically in, in Asia. And my focus is on looking at the technological influence of China. What's going on with China's internet tech crackdown right now. We're seeing a pretty dramatic clash between public and private power over there. And curious your thoughts on how significant this all is. This has to be put into context of what's happening across China more broadly, which is what we call the red reset. In essence, Xi Jinping has, along with his advisors, decided that they there needs to be a, a whole scale change in the strategic direction of China back towards, in inverted commas, better socialist principles. In essence, it's about Xi uh, consolidating his rule. Um, he's now the most powerful ruler since Chairman Mao and putting in place a lot of changes to augment the power of the Communist Party. This is something that they are free and willing to admit as well. And the, as part of that, the, the technology industry has come under increasing fire, but it is not the only one. The real estate industry, which accounts for approximately 25% of the country's GDP and provides an awful lot of the actual revenue at the, at the local and municipal levels, that is coming under just as much fire, but it's less noteworthy uh, than technology. But when it comes to the tech world, what we're seeing is two things. First of all, a crackdown on the individuals at the top of the tree, Jack Ma being the obvious one, and that's to do with removing any alternative power bases. But secondly, is also about getting better control of a centralised bureaucracy to make sure of the power of the Communist Party and not let anything else get in the way of that. Um, and a great example is in digital currencies. Having people use WePay and uh, Alipay is all very well, but that will get in the way of the Chinese national digital currency, uh, which is obviously where the where Beijing has decided it wants to go. So in essence, um, technology is just getting in the way of what Xi Jinping wants for the country. That's my take on it as well. And there was a, when that was going on in the U.S., there were a lot of people there, a lot of people in the U.S. who I think got it wrong. And they were saying things like, well, this just goes to show that the Chinese don't care about uh, sort of internet technology and they want, they care about sort of, you know, military technology. 
I always looked at it the way you did, that this is really about exerting power. And this was, a, you know, this was, hey, Jack Ma, you may be the richest person in China, but you're still under our thumb and, and we can we can make that happen anytime, any day we want to. And that goes back to your, I think, your overarching point about she exerting, exerting power. You know, I remember when I was chair of this U.S.-China Innovation Experts Group for the Obama White House, we would go over to China every six months or so. And I remember we visited a state-owned enterprise, very big state-owned enterprise. And while we're waiting to talk to the vice chairman, we're in the lobby and they have this long sort of uh, set of pictures of the history of the company. And the first picture starts with Karl Marx. And, and then it goes to Lenin. Then it goes to, I think, Mao and then Stalin. And then it goes to the company. And it was like, wait, what's going on here? Uh, and, and, you know, at one level, you can laugh at that and go, oh, yeah, this is just symbolic. But it's not symbolic. It, it, to me, it was really reflective of how that company and the overall, you know, Chinese government and Communist Party think of themselves. Yeah, I completely agree. It is really important to note that the way that the Chinese authorities think is a completely different way to the West. And many times we hear that uh, people say, oh, you know, the crackdown of Huawei or other similar companies like Nuke Tech, which do border scanning uh, machines, the crackdown on them or pushback against them, their, their perhaps unfair practices by undercutting the competition, etc., that is not considered to be a right thing to do for the West because it's perhaps somehow interfering in the free market. The Chinese authorities do not consider that anything to do with their technological champions to be in the free market. It is all about making sure that they win at the expense of Western companies. Uh, and the reason for that is because they are so carefully and heavily intertwined with the rule of the Communist Party. Uh, that sounds nefarious, but uh, perhaps it's not as nefarious as, as it means. And what I mean by that is that it's not just about them using specifically Huawei, for example, to spy on everyone. But it's it's the whole shebang in terms of these companies provide massive amounts of money for China, they provide massive amounts of outreach political capital around the world, and they allow China to control parts of the future economies, which are really important, not just for prosperity of China, but future prosperity of the world. So they are a strategic asset. And, uh, and so therefore, it is absolutely imperative that China uses these companies to win what they think of as a global technological race. That does not mean that they don't care about sort of domestic technology rather than military technology, for example, as, as you mentioned. It is all part of the same thing. That's why we have military civil fusion, uh, where civil companies can be used for military purposes and vice versa. And that is part of this, the strategy of China. I couldn't agree more. I, was, I finished up a book this weekend, and the author actually is going to be on our podcast He's a professor, I think, at Dartmouth, Stefan Link, and he has a fantastic new book, certainly for wonks like me, it's fantastic, uh, Forging Global Fordism, Nazi Germany, Soviet Russia, and the Contest Over the Industrial Order. It's a very interesting book about how the Soviets and the Nazis got so much technology from Detroit. Uh, they really, really learned. Some of it was was similar to how the Chinese have gotten it. Some have stolen it. Some of it, they sent workers over there and bring them back. But he has a quote in there, which is really spot on to what you said. And he said, productive dual-use technologies are fiercely contested by states. 
And I think that's what's going on here, although this, China is a super state and they're fiercely contesting these dual-use technologies and who's going to be able to have output and control over them. Yep. Uh, uh, there's no doubt that there is a, a concept in China about dual-use technologies, but it is not necessarily one that's looked upon in the same way in, in, in the West. And, and the, the example I always think of is, is Google. So if you remember a few years ago, there was a great outcry when Google was going to be involved in helping the Pentagon to develop some new algorithms for, for future warfighting capabilities. And there are 3,000 or so Google employees wrote uh, an open letter saying they didn't want their company to be involved in this. And sure enough, Google pulled out of it. But about a month or two later, Google was hosting a competition out west in the, in, in the deserts in, in California, which was basically in allowing international teams to come along and compete against each other using autonomous vehicles through different conditions like sandstorms and fog and all that stuff. Um, obviously with military potential to help missiles navigate through bad weather, etc. And the team that won the competition that was a, that was given the prize by Google was a team from the Chinese People's Liberation Army. So it, there is a lot of naivety in the West about the use, the way that technologies can be used for, for both purposes. Uh, and this has been borne out as well time and time again by looking at the infiltration, Chinese infiltration of civil research in lots of different uh, departments across universities in the West, whether it's Australia or the UK or US, and what could be considered to be humdrum civilian things actually turn out to be very useful for the, the development of the Chinese military. Stepping back now that we're a year out from the end of the Trump administration, how would you assess the administration's actions towards China in terms of their effect so before I answer that, it's important to know that there is a big difference between what Trump's actions internally and domestically in America and what he was doing vis-a-vis uh, -vis China and in Asia. Good point. And I, I, was, I, was, I was watching what uh, he was doing from the confines of Singapore and Hong Kong, where we were living. And what was interesting is that he had a very different viewpoint to President Obama and basically did not trust the Chinese and and was the first president, so Asia thinks, to actually stand up properly to Chinese and, and, and recognise what they were doing from a strategic and, a, and an operational point of view. And he, as uh, I think it's, it's fair to say in Asia, he's recognised as the man who basically changed the, the entire relationship between America and China. Now, obviously, there will be a lot of people that, don't like what what happened after that and a lot of people say that for example the trade war failed uh from an american point of view uh, that may be true the, the i think the jury's still out on on that when you actually see the effects on the ground and he did do a lot of things which will be which will be regretted by america for example not uh, not joining the cptpp but when it came to actually highlighting the issues that China was causing, for example, intellectual property theft and mercantile policies designed to undermine uh, Western manufacturing and Western R&D, I think that uh, there is an awful lot of people in Asia who think that he did a good job in, in highlighting that. Perhaps the, the method of his execution was a bit brusque. Uh, and perhaps could have been done in a better way. But I think from a strategic point of view, he totally changed the game between China um, and America and the West more broadly. 
You know, I remember when I was over at one of the SNED meetings, the Strategic and Economic Dialogue meetings that China and the U.S. had, and uh, I was talking with a U.S. government official about how egregious the Chinese, what the term we had coined at ITF, innovation mercantilism was, and and he said to me, he said, "Well, you're right, but I just don't know what else we can do." <laughs> and it just, you know, at some point maybe they'll stop. Uh, and, and I'm not saying he spoke for everybody in the Obama administration, but I think that was the general view in the Washington trade world and, and the foreign policy world was, well, what can we do? And Trump said, you know, hey, wait, we can do something and you can argue with what he did or not. But he did, as you say, he highlighted that. Sam, what I want to I want to sort of segue over to we, we were talking earlier before we went live about when I was over in the UK maybe a decade ago and I was highlighting to some folks in, in a meeting in 10 Downing why I thought China was a huge problem. And, you know, just basically everybody just said, no, 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 that's ridiculous. We have to be free traders with China. Obviously, now the UK is in a different position. They're they're not quite as far along maybe as the US is, but they're certainly farther along than Brussels is. Give us a sense on your side of the Atlantic, kind of where this debate is going and how far along it is and what we need to do. Well, you're right. There's a big division between the UK and, and continental Europe. The UK is 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 really woken up now. Uh, and the big catalyst uh, was the Huawei debate, because for the first time, the, the actual ambitions of China were laid bare in the press about how they wanted to do this, that, the other, and through the prism, rightly or wrongly, of, of the Huawei debate. And there's a lot of emphasis put on the fact that Huawei uh, it was, in effect, an organ of the state because it had to apply by comply with national security laws. And there was a lot of talk as well about sort of the use of Huawei's technology to feed data back to China for consumption by analysts in it within the uh, the Chinese government. And that, I think it's fair to say that all of that is completely true. Uh, but the way that Huawei tried to defend itself uh, was not particularly well received, especially when it started going on the offensive. And the uh, there was a, a, well, it was put to, I wrote an article about this, but it was put very well by a friend of mine's wife who said, before the Huawei debate, I didn't really know much about the Communist Party, but now I've seen them, I really don't like what I see. And that uh, has led to a, a strong hardening of views in the UK and the, the days of the golden era, which were espoused by David Cameron, especially around 2015, are, are long gone. However, there is still a lot of people in the UK, and I think this is to be commended, who don't want to throw the baby out with the bathwater, but actually want to see, OK, well, if, if we don't trust you, for, for many particular reasons in terms of IP theft or defense issues, whatever, are there ways where we can find areas of common understanding and to continue trading with each other, but just in a way that where we don't feel that we're taking, being taken advantage of. But for the Europeans, I don't think there's still very much, for the majority of people in Europe, it's still very much around, we generally kind of trust China a lot, not at the public level, but at the governmental level. Obviously, uh, not every country, Lithuania and, and other small countries, which are having a big argument with China now, notwithstanding. But in Germany, particularly, there is generally a view that a lot of this, the concerns, the security concerns, etc., are being overegged, and that it's much better to have a, a warmer relationship with China than it is to have a colder one. I was wondering, what's your take on how effective formal alliance against China might be? Uh, it's a very difficult one it's, uh, to answer that because I think that a formal alliance 
would only really crystallise at a time of acute international tension, i.e. a war. But even then, I think that it would be very hard, simply because you have to work out what the consequences of a, of a formal alliance against China would be. China would take it as basically an act of war. If we put together something which was called the anti-Chinese thing, like, for example, NATO, of the East. And even though it might not lead to a hot war, it would really lead to a lot of economic um, issues. You know, the, the UK, the US, Europe, they've got massive exposure to economic assets within China. 40, 50% of HSBC's profits came from China a couple of years ago, I didn't know last, last year's figure. But you know, for Britain to, to formally sort of declare economic or whatever, uh, war against China would be very difficult uh, without some there being some massive provocation, because that's what China would think of it is. However, does it mean that there can't be a grouping of countries who are coming together and trying to come up with a much stronger relationship uh, whilst looking at not just China, but Russia and other countries and allow different blocks to form depending on your preferences. Yeah, I think there's a lot of scope for that. And, and we are seeing that happen with, the, for example, the D10, the Democratic 10. And also on the fight when it comes back to technology, the fight uh, of Western companies to be aligned on uh, on principles of, of technological regulation and technological alignment. It is it is very much the beginning and I think over the next few years you will see a, a coalescing of, of the side but there won't I don't think be a formal agreement or alliance against China it will just be on its own and happening to be different to China if that makes sense. I always looked at China as, as, as they, they're, they're masters at playing countries off against one another and we're seeing that right now as we're recording with Lithuania who supported Taiwan and, you know, the fact that Europe seems to want to let Lithuania twist in the wind uh, sends a clear message that China can get away with that. So, you know, I guess there's a I 100% agree with you, there's a difference between a NATO kind of thing versus a collaboration, cooperative agreement to say, wait a minute, we're going to certainly have form more formal agreements on certain types of technology transfer, for example, I would say what we should do is we should have a formal agreement on technology transfer that we cannot allow technology transfer to any Chinese company that either steals intellectual property or has massive state subsidies. Now, that's not going to be effective unless you get a lot of countries, most countries to agree with that because there'll be holes in the agreement. So is that just wishful thinking? No, I think it's actually along the lines of what a lot of government ministers here are certainly thinking. And in Europe, there is a, a groundswell of of opinion that this is the right thing to do. It just hasn't quite translated into formal policy yet. I would be very surprised if we were sitting here in two years' time without having witnessed a massive change in the way that countries do, I'm talking about in Europe here, that countries do consider China to be a friend or a foe when it comes to technology, simply because the evidence keeps mounting up as to how much damage China has done through its innovation mercantilist policies. For example, you know, on the, on the German solar industry and anything to do with rare earths and mining and there's so much happening out there which is which is detrimental to the west economic future i think that eventually and very soon things will tip towards more of a confrontational stance from europe we've already seen the beginnings of that but this 2022 we'll see more of that i'm convinced 
Yeah, and you see that a little bit. I think there there are changes within. I, I think the fact that Merkel has is is no longer in power is probably a good sign because she was really a recalcitrant in terms of pushing uh, China, and Macron seems very much more oriented to pushing China. I, I think the really interesting question will be how much market share does China get in terms of electric vehicles? Because they certainly seem like they're, they're, they're going in that direction. If they start getting market share, particularly exports to Eastern Europe, you could see that being a game changer, I would think. Yeah. And actually it's important to note here that again, talking about technology, that China is very ambitious when it comes to industry 4.0 and there are strong desires uh, within Beijing to make sure that the industries of the future, whether it's robotics or whether it's autonomous vehicles, all of which require a an, a platform as per the, the sort of industry 4.0 way of doing things, that those platforms will be run by China. And interesting, the, the Chinese Apollo autonomous vehicle platform is already the, the world's leading autonomous vehicle uh, industry 4.0 platform. And it's got U- many European car makers have signed up to it. And I think that increasingly there will be a coming together, if regulators allow it, of Chinese and Western companies. As, because don't forget these Chinese companies have got huge amounts of money. They are very ambitious. They're bankrolled in terms of their exports by massive lines of credit. Huawei, you know, perhaps has got a hundred billion dollars worth of, of credit to use. And if, unless regulators take a stand, it's going to be very easy for these Chinese companies to continue to push into, into parts of Europe and the less developed world and get market share there, uh, especially since actually a lot of the Chinese technology you mentioned about autonomous vehicles is quite good. And a lot of the raw materials that come into it, like rare earths, are controlled by China already. So I, I, I think that unless regulators really take a stand, that the market conditions, especially the, a market that's manipulated by Chinese unfair intervention, is going to be uh, what a, a tidal wave that uh, many companies in the West uh, cannot compete with in their own markets or in their export markets. Yeah, I agree. We have to end here, but I'd love for you to tell our listeners where they can read or hear your work. Well, I write a, a weekly um, a newsletter called What China Wants, uh, which is on Substack uh, with uh, me, Sam Olson. And I write every week about geopolitical or geoeconomic issues, as you can imagine, a lot of which is technology, technology-based. And uh, feel free to come and read it. And uh, if you want to disagree, then always happy to, uh, to have a conversation about it. I would encourage readers to do that. I really enjoy reading Sam's insights. It's, it's, it's really, really helpful to my own thinking. I guess I would answer that question is everything. What does China want? Yeah. <laughs> yeah. Well, we can talk about it another time, but people that say that China just wants to sit, sit around uh, and doing not much around the world are sadly misguided. Yeah. Well, Sam, thank you so much for spending some time with us. It was really great. Thank you for having me. And that's it for this week. If you liked it, please be sure to rate us and subscribe. Feel free to email show ideas or questions to podcast at itif.org. You can find the show notes and sign up for our weekly email newsletter on our website, itif.org. And follow us on Twitter, Facebook, and LinkedIn at ITIFDC. We have more episodes and great guests lined up. New episodes will drop every other Monday. So we hope you'll continue to tune in.